It's a hot July night, 1981, and I'm laying on my back on the forest floor. My clothes are damp. There's only a small corner of tarp under my head, and all around me I can hear the noises of the woods, most of which are completely mysterious to my suburban ears. In 1981, I was nine years old. Never have I been more keenly aware sleeping outside with other girls at summer camp, uh, having been caught out without our gear on the far side of the lake after thunderstorms tossed our tiny canoes. Never before have I felt so very small. Perhaps if I had my bedroll, but it was with my cabin's gear on the other side of the lake. Perhaps if I had a good friend with me, but it was my first year there as a camper at a camp that had been a part of my family's history since the 1950s. And I had a lot of expectations, but not any friends yet. When I was nine, I was pretty shy. All that family reputation was a lot to carry, another reason to feel tiny in the face of it all. Tiny and cold and pitiful. That's how I felt. Also, more than a little scared. But after a while, I heard soft voices from the direction of our campfire, which our counselors had eventually gotten going, even after the rainstorm. We'd even managed to make s'mores, so clearly not all was wrong with the world. Since I wasn't sleeping and had no real hope of doing so anytime soon, I got up and went to the fire. I moved very quietly and I sat close, drying and warming myself. After a few minutes watching the sparks rise from the fire, I looked up. And for the first time in my life, I could see the band of the Milky Way. There was all the warmth of the fire beside me, and far above me spun so many stars, so many suns, so many other worlds as to make me and my world and my tarp corner feel very small indeed. After a while though, staring up at those impossibly distant neighbor stars, I found myself feeling at home. Still very small, of course, but no longer the only one. Compared to all that, I thought, we're all pretty small. I still didn't have my bedroll, but I was warmer, drier, I had s'mores in my tummy, and I'd found companionship in the soft voices, the sparks, and the boundless stars. Ten days ago, on July 2nd, we reached the midpoint of the year. Since 2020 is a leap day, the midpoint is truly a point. Um, at midnight, perched between July 1st and July 2nd, 2020 tipped over into its second half. In this strangest of years, our planet is currently a little more than halfway through another trip around the sun. August 1st, just weeks from now, is the Gaelic festival of Lunasa, a celebration of the start of the harvest. It's approximately the midpoint between the summer solstice and the autumnal equinox. All the work done up to this point in the year in this hemisphere has prepared for this moment, the coming harvest. The fields that rested in winter, that were turned and sown in spring, that have grown and flourished in summer with tending and care are now ready for the harvest. These are human celebrations and human instruments. We name the time it takes for the earth to describe a single orbit. We learn the seasons and the best time to plow, to plant, to harvest, 
and to rest. However, we don't learn alone. All the chorus of nature joins in to show us where we are in the year, what work lies ahead, and what has gone before. The high echoing sounds of the cicadas, the drone of bees, the feel of the sun, and the rumble of afternoon thunder tell us when it is, even in the absence of calendar or clock. We're part of something larger here, something that we can't, that can, of course, make us feel really small. Like looking up at the stars or considering another year moving around the sun, it can all get a bit overwhelming. What am I, just one small being, to do with all the work of the year that has gone before me and with all that is to come? In Naomi Shihab Nye's poem that Danielle shared with us so beautifully, we're asked to consider the small gestures and generosities that enrich our lives each and every day, both when we receive them and when we give them. We hear, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in that gate seemed apprehensive about any other person. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. Dear ones, there is another kind of harvest to speak of this year, 2020. In this year, there is a consideration too large to ignore when I speak of the natural cycles of the world, the work of turning over soil, planting, feeding, weeding, harvesting. The latest iteration in the long struggle for justice in this country, the long and agonizing work to, uh, to allow America to fulfill its as yet unfulfilled promise feels like a harvest long overdue. And when I returned again to Nye's poem, a longtime favorite of mine, it held a new ache for me. The rush of a busy airport, the hand holding with a new friend, more than anything else, the image of the powdered sugar moving through the crowd of folks sharing cookies. These images brought up a sense both of horror and of longing. That's how easy it is to spread, I thought. That's how changed we are, how vulnerable. And in this most vulnerable time, as we face the continued and in too many places increasing struggles with the pandemic, we are also asked to do the work of turning over the soil of all that has been sown. We can no longer hope for any kind of return to how it's always been because too many of us are feeling so deeply, more deeply than ever, how it's never been the same for all of us. All those natural processes are still occurring. The earth is still moving around the sun. The days are getting shorter. The plants are coming to fruition. The bees are working. Soon the birds will be migrating. And we have the planet to consider as well as the way we humans move upon it. How are we to contain the multiplicity of issues that require our attention? How many harvests can be brought in? Can we plant new fields at the same time? What old spaces, old ideas, old practices simply must be left fallow? With all that feels out of step, out of sort in our larger world and in our daily lives, 
are we humans still up to the task of working this world to bring a more true and bountiful harvest that benefits us all? Well, speaking as a representative human, I would certainly like to try. I started today with a story from summer camp in 1981, a lifetime ago. Of course, right now, January feels like a lifetime ago. Um, but my, my time at that camp and my memories, as well as my family's deep legacy there, felt at the time like a pure good. In the course of doing the work of the world, I learned that this camp misappropriated images, terms, activities, and names from indigenous peoples. I learned and internalized harmful stereotypes, including the insidious untruth that the lives of tribal nations on these lands ended in the distant past. This week, the Supreme Court handed down the decision that much of Eastern Oklahoma, including the majority of the city of Tulsa, is the rightful and sovereign land of the Muscogee Creek Nation. This decision not only holds the United States accountable to an agreement it made and broke long ago, it serves as a reminder of the fact that we're saved from perfection. The notion of pure good of perfection must not restrain us from action. As representative humans, we can't do everything, but we must do something and there are plenty of choices. Looking at the work of this year and our own lives, it can feel like a daunting task. How am I supposed to go experience the joy and wonder of nature and work for a world where black lives matter and consider my family and their well-being and my own and consider the economic, social, and environmental impact of years of failed policy and still pay the bills on time in the middle of a global pandemic? What sort of harvest am I supposed to glean from all this? I'm just one tiny person. It's an interesting word, tiny. It feels like what it is, small and maybe a bit cute. We do that sometimes, conflating smallness with cuteness. Another dangerous thing that we do is to conflate cuteness and smallness with weakness. Small things can be very strong indeed. We've been talking about harvest and beloveds of the Unitarian Universalist faith and any faith tradition you come from. Do you remember the parable of the mustard seed? You may not be familiar. Parable is a teaching tool. And in the Christian scriptures, the stated reason that the mustard seed is used to illustrate the power of faith is that it's such a small seed that turns into something so large and magnificent. Depending on where the seed lands when it's scattered, it can grow to full flower or it can be choked on the path. And I'd like to invite us to consider another story, another seed. I'd like us to look at the impossible idea of all that we're asked to do in the face of strange and unsettling conditions and maybe instead of the mustard seed, think about a dandelion. And not just any dandelion, not the ones in your yard where maybe you don't want them, or even the ones that have gone all fluffy and puffy and you just want to blow on them and scatter the seeds to the wind, even if they wind up back in your yard. I'd like you to ask you to consider at this turning point in the year, the task of the determined dandelion pushing their way up through concrete. Our dandelion is not just any plant. It is a tiny being determined to make its way in the world despite the obstacles placed before it. Maybe our faith is in those tiny white seeds born on the air. 
One of humanity's greatest science communicators, Carl Sagan, wrote a single novel among all his other work. That novel, Contact, is about many things. Humanity's first contact with an alien civilization, the ways that we have and lose contact with one another, the hopes and fears that we all confront. And in it, he writes, for small creatures such as we, the vastness is bearable only through love. There's another way to consider this question of smallness and scale. A tiny seed may become a huge plant, but it's still supported within a complex ecosystem of interdependent life, from bacteria in the soil to mycelium connections in a web of communication, from bird and insect pollinators to bustling neighbor plants who need to share the same resources. Here then is another metaphor to consider. On June 19th, 2020, Juneteenth, the New York Times published an opinion piece by Maeve Higgins, a white Irish woman living in the United States, titled, quote, to white people who want to be one of the good ones. It's a beautiful invitation to all persons in this country raised and socialized as white to consider the joy of doing the work of dismantling harmful systems of white supremacy. She writes, when you're white, understanding racism and anti-blackness is not a root canal. It's not a one-time only pay your money, drill the rod out and get through it type of experience. This is a lifelong project that we get to approach with grace and curiosity and the full understanding that it will be difficult at times and beautiful at times and any chance we have to take part in it is frankly rather stunning. She speaks to the issue of, of scale, how can I, just one person, do anything with the metaphor of water. And again, I'm just going to read from her opinion piece directly. I hope you understand that grappling with this country's brutal past and imagining a future that is fair is not something you are expected to do alone. You're simply one drop in a new wave, a wave that slips easily into an ocean of people, deep and permanent, who have long been eroding the cliffs of white supremacy. I hope this comes as a relief to you, as it did to me, there is great solace in putting aside the fallacy that you're entitled to a starring role in this story. When you jump from the brittle scaffold built by violence and go tumbling into the tide, you'll see that it's easy. You'll find leaders and peers there all around you. You won't worry then about messing up or getting lost. You'll know at once where you're needed. Much of that time will be behind these leaders and peers, often beside them. And when faced with danger, you'll be in front of them bashing into the cliffs yourself so that they can float and sparkle and enjoy the world away from the fight. She, conclu she concludes, one powerful lie that we were born into is that white people deserve different, better lives than anyone else. We see now that this lie is deadly for others and it is dangerous for us too. This lie that can only hold fast by isolating us from one another and having us do ugly things to keep that separation up, it divides us from what we are. Just a bunch of molecules in a variety of formations that will dissolve and rebuild in the blink of time's eye.
Laugh at that lie as you squint out into the horizon and see the truth. Then jump into the ocean that will inevitably get you there. You will love it. I promise. We're small creatures in many ways. And in other ways, we are larger than measure. And in lots of ways, size is immaterial. Tell the dandelion pushing through concrete she should be much larger and you might hear her laughing. Tell an individual drop in the ocean that they can't do much. Watch a tidal wave appear. We love one another. We love our world. And our love compels us. It compels us to wear a mask. It compels us to jump into turbulent waters and know we are not alone. It compels us to keep apart from one another even as we know in our bones how much easier this would all be if we were allowed the comfort of close physical connection. It compels us to pace ourselves for this long journey that will outlast our lifetimes. It compels us to consider others before ourselves. At the midpoint of the year, may we pause a moment to examine the ways these loves are similar and to consider what love demands of us. May the work of the second half of the year buoy you upon these changing seas, shifting winds. And in our work and in our rest and in our love, may we find peace. So may it ever be.